the world is kind of scary right now and confusing. There's a lot of unknown and panic surrounding that. And there have also been huge mishandlings of this pandemic within our government, which is unsettling to say the least. And eventually we're going to pull all of this together and create a comprehensive understanding of this pandemic and its effects. But before we can do that, it's important to understand the disease itself. You're listening to Pandemic COVID-19. I'm Maxfield Rivers, the high school senior trying to host this podcast and figure out what's going on for myself. Today, we'll discuss the disease, how it works, and what makes it unique. Later in the episode, we'll talk about lessons from disease movies like Outbreak or Contagion. But first, an update. As of today, April 11th, there are over 1.6 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally and almost 100,000 deaths. In the U.S., there are over 460,000 confirmed cases and almost 17,000 deaths. Much of the world is on lockdown, including America. And now, to the actual episode. I'd call myself a dabbler in science. I'm taking a medical microbiology course, or at least I was before my school closed. And right before it did, my teacher gave a lecture on COVID-19, so I think I know a little bit. Not enough to give expert advice, certainly, and not enough to calm my own fears of the unknown. And I vividly remember at the beginning of this whole thing thinking, oh, this is going to be like a slightly worse version of the annual flu. I know, I know, they're different viruses, but similar effects. And I thought everybody was making too big of a deal out of it. I also thought this could never be like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Clearly, I was wrong. So when I called Dr. Anthony Fair, a professor at the University of Kansas and an expert in coronaviruses, one of the first things I asked him was, how is COVID-19 different from the flu? It's hard to compare it. I mean, in terms of disease, it is very similar to uh, flu. There are some notable symptom differences. Um, I think, and I don't have the list right in front of me, I, I can't give you exactly what it was. Uh, I think the flu will cause more body aches. Um, and, you know, maybe even higher temperatures than, than this one does. The uh, COVID-19 is going to affect more your, your respiratory system and, and really make it hard, kind of make it really hard to breathe, uh, or that's not necessarily always the case with influenza. The other thing you got, we have to think about, too, in terms of the spread and the, and the, the impact of this virus is that there's no vaccine and, and no approved treatment. There's some treatments being tested right now, as opposed to the flu virus where we have vaccines, you know, which are you know sometimes effective, sometimes not so effective, uh, and we have antivirals for the flu that, that can help to mitigate the disease. So um, that's you know I guess a major re- big difference in why we're we are responding the way we are to COVID nineteen and, and why we generally don't respond to flu virus, even though it, the flu virus kills you know thirty roughly thirty thousand people a year in the United States. And just to make you feel a little better if you're still worried that maybe, like the flu, coronaviruses will keep showing up. So coronaviruses uh, do cause um, a large number of cases of the common cold each year. I think somewhere between 10 and ten and 20 percent of the common cold cases each year are caused by one of, you know, are caused by a variety of four different coronaviruses. 
Um, and so those ones clearly come back at least, and I don't know if they come back every year, the same, same virus comes back every year. Cause like I said, there's four of them. Um, however, coronaviruses don't mutate quite as rapidly as the flu. My opinion is that they are less likely to pose a recurring threat than the flu virus does, but they could, they could still pose that kind of threat. My guess is it may be more like every two to three years if the virus can survive for that long. Okay, there are some differences in symptoms. If you're sneezing and have body aches, you're more likely to have the flu than COVID-19. And we're probably not going to have outbreaks like this on a yearly basis. That makes me feel better, but I still wanted to know more about this virus. Coronaviruses are millions of years old, older than us, and they've been hanging around in bats and some birds, which are natural reservoirs for coronaviruses and others. This particular coronavirus is named SARS-CoV-2, and the disease it causes is COVID-19. What more is there to know about coronaviruses? So in general, these viruses uh, have what's called a lipid. They're surrounded by this like lipid, you know, circular sphere of, of you know, of stuff kind of like, it's hard, hard to really descri- describe. And then it, within that lipid ball, there are these called what are called spike proteins or proteins that stick out. And that's what mediates the attachment of these viruses to cells in the body. Uh, then their genome, they have inside of that ball of, you know, uh, of protein and lipid is inside of that is their genome. Uh, and coronaviruses have a larger genome than any other RNA viruses we know of. So they have a lot of different, and that genome can encode for lots of different things that you, the virus uses to kind of block host responses and host defenses um, that are trying to kill it. Uh, so the virus is really good at getting around your innate immune response, but a lot of viruses have that those same properties. Um, what's interesting is, you know, since these viruses are really large, they have the ability to kind of, uh, as I talked about, they prevent mutations from occurring uh, during infection. Now, that doesn't mean that mutations won't happen. Uh, it just means that they won't happen quite as frequently as other RNA viruses. When a virus moves from an animal to a human, it's classified as zoonotic. There are seven known zoonotic coronaviruses. Four cause milder symptoms, the common cold, and three are much more severe. But given how long coronaviruses have been around, why have only seven jumped the species barrier? It basically has to do with with what the virus is trying to bind to to get into your cells, okay? So... This virus, the, the receptor, we call it the receptor in the, in the uh, human cell. So the human cell receptor is called ACE2. Okay? This is a protein that is actually conserved among a lot of different species. Okay? So if a, you know, they talked a lot about a pangolin earlier in this outbreak or whatever animal originally had it, likely has that same protein, ACE2, in their lungs. It may be slightly different, but maybe it's not different enough that the virus cares, right? And so once that you come in contact with that animal, then the virus that that animal is carrying jumps into your respiratory system and is able to, to bind to your cells because it's using kind of a, a protein that's somewhat conserved between the two species. So now that we know all this, it's time to talk about COVID-19 when it gets into your body. Uh, if the virus stays in the upper respiratory tract, you have a much better chance. It's going to probably just cause uh, cold symptoms. And we've also, we've also often heard of asymptomatic cases, people that don't have any symptoms from this virus. 
And that's when the virus kind of stays in your upper respiratory system. Again, probably is not, you know, your, your hosts or your cells are probably winning that, you know, that antiviral, you know, battle. And you kind of clear the virus within, you know, probably five to seven days. Uh, on the other hand, if it gets into the lower respiratory tract, it is able to, you know, replicate significantly. That can cause a lot of damage down in your lower respiratory tract. It will co- make it hard to breathe. You're going to start coughing a lot. Um, and then if you get enough damage, uh, you know, then there's your immune system will start trying to attack the virus. And if it gets there too late, it's actually going to, your immune system is going to do a lot of damage. What's called a cytokine storm. Your immune response is going to try really hard and, and, and come in with a, just a ferocious gusto to try to take care of the virus. Um, the problem with that is that it, the immune system will start killing your cells in there. So ultimately all this damage to your lungs can bleed out or can, you know, sift out into your bloodstream, into your blood and get to other organs. The virus might, you know, the virus might get to other organs or immune, your immune response might start targeting other organs. Uh, that can really lead to uh, your, your very severe cases of the virus. Um I've only seen one autopsy. What happened with the first autopsy that I saw was that uh, the man, you know, had all of this damage in his lung. The virus uh, got into the bloodstream, and ultimately, um, it got into his, I believe, into his heart or into his, you know, endothelial cells around the heart. And you had a, again, another your immune response attack that, and it caused them to have a heart attack. But there are any number of different outcomes, you know. You know, you could have uh, multi-organ failure. You could have, you could just die from lack of oxygen. Actually, never. I will uh, take a little bit of that back. A lot of times, when you have all this damage to your lung, that the problem with your other organs a lot of times is that lack of oxygen they get because all your organs need oxygen to get to function properly. And if they're not getting all the oxygen they need, then they're going to start uh, failing. And since there are no FDA-approved treatments for COVID-19. Once you get really sick, treatments are limited to ventilators and other measures to lessen symptoms of the virus, rather than denaturing the virus itself. If you're in a hospital overwhelmed with severe coronavirus cases, even those treatments could be hard to obtain. So here's your first reminder from me to stay home. If you're infected with COVID-19, your immune system is the only thing capable of destroying the virus. Since COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus and no one before this pandemic was exposed to it, no one has antibodies. Antibodies, if you don't know, are proteins created by the immune system, which targets specific antigens or foreign invaders. When you're exposed to an antigen, your body learns how to make antibodies to target and eliminate that specific threat. This is why vaccines work. You're injected with a weakened or inactive form of a virus, and you create antibodies that respond to the vaccine. So when the real thing gets into your system, you already have what you need to win that war. But there's no vaccine for COVID-19 yet, and as much as we need one, it's a long way off. There are, there are many, many different things you have to test uh, to confirm, A, vaccines are safe, B, that they're effective. Um, and you have to know what the immune response is that, that happens. Um, you know, you biologically, I mean, our bio bodies, you know, humans are very, very complex machines, right? And so to just stick something in and, and, and say, oh, we're going to develop this. And in three months we can stick it into a human and there's going to be no problems is extremely naive. Um, and that's why it takes eight, like they said, at least 18 months, you know, you, I don't even know the full timeline. I've never been involved in vaccine development. Um, but you have to do all of these tests to confirm that they're safe and that they're effective. 
And then at that point, you know, we have to figure out which ones are going to work the best and then ramp up production to where you could actually distribute it to uh, millions of people at once. I mean, that's that's a, not a small task uh, to expect out of even, you know, even a, even the most, you know, well-machined, you know, bio biopharmaceutical or pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it's not a, not a trivial task. And you have to confirm each lot or each batch of virus that you produce is the same and works Um and so when Dr. Fauci says that it'll take 18 months, I have no doubt that it will take 18 months to do all these tests. Though we have developed, I mean, in record pace, in record speed, um, vaccines that are getting in, cl- in clinical trials right now. I think it was two months from the time we had a sequence of the virus to developing a, a, at least a trial vaccine is, is a record, uh, is really a record. I mean, most most vaccine uh, vaccines get tested and approved over the course of five five to ten years on a minimum usually and up to upwards of 20 to 25 years you know uh it can take to get approval and so that's just to give you a little bit of a spectrum of what normal vaccine development takes and what we're trying to do here which is something that's never been done before another thing that's a long way off ubiquitous testing unfortunately all right so yeah so first of all i'll say i'm not a diagnostic scientist um but I do know, I understand the assay they use They use is a is a quantitative uh, PCR assay, which just measures the amount of viral RNA in a person's throat. Um, I don't know exactly. It's, it's really not a, a hard process to develop these tests. You have to develop um, some, some, some reagents that can specifically bind to the viral RNA, and then, um, you know, then you collect the sample, you put those reagents in with the sample, and you have a machine that can test it, right? Uh, anytime you ramp up to the point where you need to do millions of these, though, there could be problems. I mean, anytime you start working with reagents uh, that you need for the, the reagents you need for this assay are, you know, can be somewhat sensitive to heat or, you know, just sitting out for too long or, or time. So all of these things might you know, have affected the why the first batch of tests did not work. However, I don't think that that's a valid excuse. I mean, it was a major, this is, this is a major problem uh, that should never happen, quite honestly, with these tests um, and really affected our ability to respond to the initial uh, surge of cases that was occurring. Um, I, yeah, I think that there was a massive problem at several levels in uh, in terms of getting tests to different cities, I would have I would have thought back in January when we had our first case and when China's cases were uh, upticking very quickly that we should have you know been distributing you know hundreds of thousands of tests to you know most every major city uh, and airport, but that clearly didn't happen. And now a quick analysis of this outbreak and how it compares to movies like well outbreak. I watched that movie about a month before everything shut down, and about a week ago I watched The Andromeda Strain, another disease movie, proof I can't control myself. A common characteristic in these movies is that the virus mutates to become deadlier. So I thought it was worth asking, could COVID-19 do that? Yeah, so, you know, we've been monitoring, and not by we, I mean like the general scientific community has been monitoring the uh, mutagenic potential of this virus. And it doesn't seem like it's mutating a lot um, from, if you compare, you know, isolates in China to isolates here. Um, viruses don't de- tend to mutate to cause more disease or cause their, their host to die more frequently because that's a bad 
bad idea in general for a virus. They want to keep their their host alive. They want to their their ultimate goal is to replicate as much as possible, and that includes, and generally that involves wanting to spread more effectively. Mutations would likely, um, you know, we could see enhanced transmission. Now this virus is already transmitting very very well, um, so I find it hard. I think it's going to be hard for the virus to mutate to a form that's going to be more transmissible uh, than it already is. Um, in terms of hindering research, I mean, I, I think there's no real impact. I mean, if it developed, you know, more, became more transmissible or even maybe more pathogenic, um, that could put more um, restrictions in place by the CDC or by uh, other government agencies in terms of how you could research them, like what, you know, level of facility they, you know, you need to actually do the research. So that could definitely hinder uh, our, our, our work because we kind of assume right now that this virus is a, what's called a, you know, we can work with it at a biosafety level three levels. Um, and so, you know, if you had further, if it became more virulent, or more pathogenic, which, like, like I said, is probably unlikely. You could imagine maybe they would make it a BSL-4 level virus, which would really hinder the number of people that could research it. Or they could label it as a select agent, um, which also uh, would dramatically hinder this, hinder our ability to do research on it. I'll be back with more interviews soon. Thank you for listening. Pandemic COVID-19 is a podcast hosted by me, Maxfield Rivers. I'm also the producer and researcher. I'd like to extend a huge thank you to Dr. Anthony Fair for agreeing to answer my questions on this show and to you for listening. I encourage you to share this podcast and support my work and want to remind you to stay home and stop the spread.